Welcome to our Workplace Violence in 2023 uh, program today. Uh, I'm uh, Dr. Charles Denham. I'll be your master of ceremonies today. I'm the chairman of TMIT Global. We're delighted to have you with us. This is our 200th webinar, 200th monthly webinar. It's hard to believe that we've had that much uh, 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 experience with this and such a great uh, uh, audience. Uh, for those of you that are on the podcast, you can go back to, uh, you can go to our website at www.safetyleaders.org to download the slides and watch the videos. We'll add uh, additional resources and articles and, and other things to keep uh, the topic fresh. This is the first of a series of programs that we'll undertake on workplace violence. Uh, for those of you that want to download the slides that are live, you may do so as well by going to uh, our website. Uh, we're very blessed to have uh, uh, Jennifer Dingman, who will be with us. Uh, she, in case her internet uh, uh, connection was not great, she recorded uh, her open for us, and she'll be with us as a reactor as well. Uh, Jenny is a longstanding patient safety advocate. Uh, we're almost at 200 of months in a row that we've run these webinars, and for many of them, she was the opening speaker. We always try to have somebody representing a family, a patient family, um, that will help us focus on what uh, we are to do. She's got kids. She's got kids that have been students. This is a, a major focus area for us, so we'll have Jenny open us. Thank you for your kind introduction, Dr. Denham. Today's program is very, very important regarding workplace violence. We're seeing an increased number of violent acts at workplaces, particularly hospitals, healthcare facilities, and other places where people are trying to help other people. I'm very, very excited about listening to today's program, and I thank all of you for coming. Please share this program in the recording with all of your friends, colleagues, and family members. I'll hand it back to you, Dr. Denham. Uh, what I thought I'd do is just start off with a video to uh, uh, to really kind of uh, uh, set uh, our stage here before we go to our uh, voice of the patient. I've been hit, punched, bitten, kicked, scratched, called names, cursed at, even choked. Too many nurses and health professionals have suffered violence at work. It happens in hospitals, nursing homes, treatment centers, and other facilities every day, and the attacks can come from patients, family, or other visitors. This kind of violence is preventable. In 2016, 70% of non-fatal workplace assaults occurred in the healthcare and social assistance sectors, and nurses were often the targets. In fact, healthcare workers are nearly five times more likely to be assaulted than the rest of the American labor force. And workplace violence is getting worse. In the last decade, rates of violence rose by 123% in hospitals and more than doubled in psychiatric and substance use treatment facilities. It won't get better unless we do something. Nurses and health professionals are fighting for policies to make our hospitals safer for ourselves and our patients. We are speaking up to say, violence is not part of the job. Help us prevent workplace violence. Tell your legislators that nurses deserve to be safe at work. So 
So, so this uh, this uh, program uh, is uh, uh, is dated, uh, and we know that the problem is even worse. Now, I'm going to go through some just preliminary information uh, to get uh, uh, to get us started. We've got great speakers. You may go to our social media uh, addresses, which you'll see in our uh, uh, slide deck. And very quickly, the purpose of TMIT Global, which is now, um, uh, I, I founded it in 1984, so we're almost at 40 years. Our purpose is to measure, that we will measure our success by how we protect and enrich the lives of families, patients, and caregivers. Our mission is to save lives, save money, and create value in the communities we serve. And we try to live our core values, and, I, and, and I'm sure we fail every day, but we make a great attempt at uh, focusing on our behaviors of integrity, compassion, accountability, reliability, and entrepreneurship. Um, you may look at uh, uh, the slide six for our disclosure statements. None of our speakers have uh, anything to disclose. And TMIT Global has never been funded uh, by uh, industry, by uh, pharmaceutical or device companies. Uh, no direct, indirect, or affiliated financial support has ever uh, been or ever will be provided by healthcare, pharmaceutical, or device companies. Uh, for those of you that are with us for the first time, uh, TMIT, uh, the, the Global Research Testbed, as I say, launched almost 40 years ago. Over time, over many, many, many projects, has aggregated about 3,100 hospitals and 3,000 communities and 500 subject matter experts from clinical, operational, and financial areas who contribute their time and energy to us. I'll only mention our coronavirus community of practice to acknowledge our speakers today. Our three live speakers actually were great contributors. We ultimately ended up with 160 subject matter experts and produced 30 90-minute programs that are av available on our website. And we're especially delighted to have a great uh, uh, young adult team uh, ranging from high school students right through to graduate school from many of our leading universities who are contributing to our MedTAC program, our medical tactical program to focus on failure to rescue for, um, uh, for, for the most common uh, medical emergencies that bystanders can, where bystanders can have a role before EMS arrives. We undertook a 1,000 worker study over the 30 month period and it continuously informed our work. And now it's informing our work in this area that uh, of, uh, of, of preventable harm and failure to rescue. So uh, we have a series of 10 articles, six have been published uh, in, the, in, the, in the journal for, um, uh, for healthcare, faith-based and uh, higher education organizations, Campus Safety Magazine. One is on active shooter, the other is rapid response teams, and the other is AED and bleeding control gear placement. And um, our last webinar, we addressed uh, the preventable and unanticipated harm. And today, workplace violence has grown so much that it actually has now uh, expanded far beyond just physical violence of an incident, of a single incident. Draw, I want to draw your attention to those on the podcast that, that uh, we have a fairly complicated chart here that, that shows the unintentional death uh, uh, from data from 2013, and it was published uh, by the National Safety Council in 2016, and then we have reconstructed or constructed a similar graphic with their data for from 2020 which shows an enormous uh, increase in opioid overdose. And so please come back to watch some of our uh, programs on, uh, on that. And we'll be covering drug diversion in hospitals and other things, but we cover each of these er the areas that are the most common causes uh, of unanticipated uh, harm and death. 
The problem is failure to rescue. And um, on a, a slide for those that are on the uh, the audio uh, and, and uh, podcast, we address eight leading causes of death and the concept of failure to rescue. And now we're talking about workplace violence and really failure to rescue from that. Um, uh, what we, we work with a number of the as many national organizations as we can uh, to uh, to provide training, free training. We never charge for it uh, for uh, training for these areas. Um, and finally, the, our, our learning management system, which will issue if you're nurses or physicians, continuing education documentation and uh, certificates. Uh, we start uh, with a community of practice and we work and learn together. We develop course uh, R&D. We develop competency testing and then certifications and, and, and uh, incentives. And that's what we've done with this, this program called uh, MedTap, which we won't cover today. But we do, and Bill uh, Adcox, Chief Adcox, I, I'd love for you and embedded in some of your comments to address how we tackle the four Ps, prevention, preparedness, protection, and performance improvement as we talk about workplace violence. And uh, we, and before COVID, uh, Bill uh, Adcox, who's with us, and Chief, uh, and uh, Dr. Uh, Gregory Boats and uh, Randy Steiner, and a number of our leaders helped us establish a community practice of emerging threats. These are 30 emerging threats that should or are keeping leaders of medical uh, centers up at night, but we've expanded it now to higher education and we're expanding even further to schools. Uh, but the, the, the 30 topics, one of the topics was workplace violence with a definition that was pretty limited. Uh, for those of you that want to know more about this community and practice, you can, on uh, um, uh, uh, one of our slides here, you can uh, go to uh, www.globalpatientsafetyforum and watch a video regarding that topic. We focus on inside and outside threats, the threats and vulnerabilities inside and the threats and uh, vulnerabilities that we have to outside threats. And the goal is not that we believe that we can remove all threats to workplace, workplace violence or any of these threats, but that we can increase resilience and that we can increase um, a, a safer zone. So um, on um, the slide I'm showing now for the podcast, uh, I show the 30 areas that we're focused on for these emerging threats. And one of these is workplace violence. Now, you'll hear a lot more from uh, Dr. Uh, Clements and from Vicki King, so I won't steal their thunder, but the expanded definition from, from what all of us thought of workplace violence to be physical assaults to our staff and an individual act or a set of acts has now been expanded dramatically. So if we looked at workplace violence prior to this community of practice being launched in the recent development of this new definition, it was one of our 30 areas. But now with the expanded uh, definition to verbal and nonverbal and intimidating and harassing, humiliating, humiliating words, bullying, sabotage. And for those of you that are on the podcast, we've got this definition, which, uh, which Vicki King will address, and I'm sure Dr. Clements will address. This has dramatically expanded uh, the vulnerabilities and the target areas. And now in our emerging threats community of practice, it covers many more, a number uh, of, of these 30 areas we're focused on, violent acts against leadership, insider threats, intentional harm to patients, even financial harm to patients, uh, defamation or unfair press, preventable death or severe injury, and really all of these can impact our brand. So with that, 
brief introduction, I'd like to go to uh, Vicki King. Vicki King is the assistant police chief uh, working with, uh, with uh, Chief uh, Adcox, who's with us live today. She's on vacation today. She was gracious enough to prepare an entire presentation for us. Uh, which I'll stream now. Uh, we're so grateful uh, to uh, have her share her time with us. For almost 30 years, she has uh, lived in Houston as the assistant police chief at, at the, uh, uh, the, uh, in the police department in Houston. She's done international work. She has a master's in criminal justice. She is, uh, I think, one of our leading edge academicians, meaning that she's really teaching us an awful lot about uh, the threats and many of the threats far beyond uh, uh, active shooter uh, events. And I've asked Vicki to kind of give us a new a foundation. This is the first of a number of webinars that we'll have on, 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 uh, on uh, workplace violence, but we really wanted to get a level set of a foundation. And then we'll ask uh, Dr. Casey Clements from the Mayo Clinic uh, to build on that. So I'm going to now turn it over to Vicki King and we'll have her um, uh, address this foundation of knowledge. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for the opportunity to talk about this extremely important subject of workplace violence. We want to begin our discussion with level setting where workplace violence is in the healthcare community in 2023. And what we have found, it may be shocking to many of you, it is a constant and pervasive threat to caregivers, staff, educators, in fact, the entire community. And so today we want to examine workplace violence within our healthcare community and do more than raise awareness, we wanna have a call to action. Just to give you an idea of our background, I wanna give credit to my colleague and mentor, Bill Adcox. He is the Vice President and Chief Security Officer for MD Anderson and UT Health. He and I work together. I'm over the investigative operations and threat management team for MD Anderson Cancer Center, UT Health Science Center in Houston, the Dunn Behavioral Health Center, uh, which was just uh, recently added as one of our hospitals, and uh, the Harris County Psychiatric Center. So we see many of these cases walking through our doors, and we want to share with you some of the insights and some of the approaches that we have to workplace violence. But we have to begin with our triage. So what's our current state? What's our current condition? Well, the numbers collected by the federal government uh, are not as recent as we would like them to be. But when we look at it, this has been a pervasive problem for quite some time. In 2019, eight in 10, uh, about 80% of our emergency department physicians say that the uh, workplace violence within their care setting is increasing. And of those, more than half say patients have been physically harmed while in their emergency department. Nearly half of emergency physicians themselves have been physically assaulted while at work. And more than six in 10 of those assaulted say that assault occurred just within the past year. So nearly seven in 10 say their hospitals reported the incident, yet three only 3% of those assaulted press charges. And that's a significant problem within our community in that some view being a victim of workplace violence is just part of the job. 
And I'm here to say that no, it's not. Our prevention efforts begin when we take these issues seriously and we work to curb future violence, when we stand together as a community and take proactive action. When we look at healthcare workers as a community, uh, the um, uh, Workplace Violence Prevention Healthcare and Social uh, Services Act wants to address this. That's legislation that was proposed after OSHA issued a report that said healthcare workers suffer 50% of all workplace violence assaults. Now, some of the data is, is not as fresh as we would like. So we get some of our data from uh, surveys. Um, the US Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, surveyed healthcare and social service workers, and they found that the highest rates of injuries were caused by workplace violence. And they just in 2021 revised their findings to say that healthcare workers are five times as likely to be injured because of workplace violence as compared to other workers overall. In 2022, there was a survey by the National Nurses United, which is the largest union of registered nurses, and 48% of the more than 2,000 responding nurses reported an increase in workplace violence, more than double the percentage from the earlier year. So it's on the rise, and we all know how COVID has impacted our healthcare community in ways we never expected. So let's look at the definition of workplace violence. We're going to take this from the Joint Commission definition, and it says simply that workplace violence is an act or threat occurring at the workplace that can include any of the following. Verbal, nonverbal, written or physical aggression, threatening, intimidating, harassing, or humiliating words or actions, bullying, sabotage, sexual harassment, physical assaults, or other behaviors of concern involving staff, licensed practitioners, patients, or visitors. So it's a pretty comprehensive um, definition that allows us with this broad definition to look at the sources and intervention strategies associated with workplace violence. Now, how did we get here? The most important thing is that we have to remember the impact those people who have paid the ultimate price for being a healthcare worker and serving our community. You see just a few of the faces here. Lynn Truxillo was an emergency department nurse who uh, was at the job working when a, another nurse was attacked by a homeless man, uh, Jesse Guillory, in the emergency department. And she did what many of us would do. She sprang into action. Our nurses are on the front lines. They know how to, uh, to protect and she ran to the aid of the colleague. Guillory attacked her, threw her to the ground. She suffered a torn ACL, and, um, in, and amazingly, she completed her shift. But she knew that something was really wrong. She went and sought medical treatment the next day, scheduled to have surgery, but before she could get the surgery, she threw a blood clot and died. 
as a direct result of the assault she received in her emergency department. But these aren't the, she isn't the only one. We had a, a CNA, Ray James. He was killed by a coworker who had mental health issues. He was sitting at a desk doing his job. He had no interaction with this worker, no grievance with that worker. And the worker was delusional and attacked him and killed him in the workplace. Dr. Mark Houseconnect, I worked on Dr. Houseconnect's forensic review of his case. It's a fascinating case study. Uh, those of you who might be interested, I'd be glad to share it with you. But Mark was actually assassinated riding his bicycle on Main Street on a Friday morning um, by the son of a patient who tragically the patient died during a procedure that Dr. Houseconnect had conducted. And the grievance for that case was 21 years in the making. Seems incredible, but he was murdered in the Texas Medical Center on Main Street. One of the most compelling case studies is Dr. Tamara O'Neill. Dr. O'Neill was a victim of domestic violence. Uh, she separated uh, and called off her engagement with her fiance. He came to the workplace to confront her over the return of an engagement ring. She went out into the parking lot to keep his aggressive behavior away from coworkers. Uh, a friend tried to come to her aid and her fiance shot and killed Dr. O'Neill in the parking lot. Uh, a police officer was passing, saw the assault, uh, chased the suspect, and he, the suspect ran into the hospital. When he entered the hospital, there was a young pharmacy tech exiting the elevator, and he shot and killed her without any reason, without any hesitation. He also shot and killed the police officer who responded to the to the uh, assist um, Dr. O'Neill and her colleagues. It's a tragic event, but it demonstrates how workplace violence, these domestic violence situations can spill over into the workplace. Mental health technician, Cassie Dewey was another one. She was killed by a coworker uh, who was a boyfriend he had uh, a romantic uh, relationship with a fellow uh, employee at their hospital and engaged in domestic violence. The hospital knew about that incident, but didn't relieve him of duty, didn't try and manage that assault behavior. Uh, and Kathy unsuspectingly entered into a relationship with him. It, immediately went bad and she was killed outside of her home, leaving a young child. Then, then of course, there's Dr. Elbert Burt Goodyear, uh, who was killed by a patient who was upset over a diagnosis. These types of tragic events occur, thankfully, not often end in fatalities, but the assault of behavior begins in the hospital and left unchecked can result in a tragic end. And so what we wanna do is share with you in their memory, some actions that we can take to help prevent those acts of violence from escalating. And we get assistance from our accreditation and standards organization. CMS is the first one. 
And CMS talks about the patient having a right to receive care in a safe setting. And it requires that the hospital comply with all federal, state, and local emergency preparedness requirements. So CMS kind of level sets. It's, it is um, the governing body for all hospitals across the nation. We also look to OSHA for their guidelines. OSHA has one of the uh, most complete guidelines to workplace violence that they issued just a couple of years ago. It's still fresh, still violent, uh, still uh, viable for you to look at. It's a great starting point, but it also serves as the foundational event for a Workplace Violence Prevention Act for healthcare and social uh, service workers. This uh, legislation passed the House with 228 co-sponsors and currently sits in the Senate. Um, the le legislation calls on OSHA to issue a standard requiring employers in healthcare and social services industries to develop and implement workplace violence prevention plans to protect their employees. Uh, it also protects not just the, the staff, but also the visitors and patients who come into the facilities seeking help. The most recent are the Joint Commission Accreditation Standards, uh, and uh, we're going to explore these in a little more detail into this next slide. So there are four revisions or new standards that were applied, and they took effect in January of last year. And the first and foremost is you have to have a designated leader, a single point. In our hospital, uh, uh, Bill Adcock, our chief of police and chief security officer, is our designated leader. So the hospital has this workplace violence prevention program, and you have one person who's your standard bearer who is responsible for bringing it and is the face a place and a person that people can identify with and go to uh, to help advance workplace violence prevention initiatives. The second is to have an annual worksite analysis. So the hospital needs to conduct an annual review related to its workplace violence program. And this is designed to identify hotspots in your, in your um, community of care, whether it's your emergency department, ICU, uh, any of your pediatric units or palliative care or hospice care, outpatient services. You identify through the data places of vulnerability and have specific actionable plans that you're going to enact in order to mitigate, reduce, or eliminate that violence. And then most, uh, we, we all know that training is essential. Um, the hospital needs to, pro uh, to provide role-based training. And what that means is that the hospital uh, provides education and resources and training to leadership, licensed practitioners, based on what they do in the, in the hospital. What are the expectations? Because we know that frontline nurses and, and doctors may have different vulnerabilities and different challenges than, say, um, a receptionist or a scheduling assistant. Um, looking at all aspects of the hospital and finding out where you are in terms of vulnerability and what skill sets you need to mitigate those vulnerabilities. So when you're talking about, let me 
back up just a second on the role-based training, the most important thing is that everyone needs to know what is your prevention program, what's your strategy, how to recognize behaviors of concern, and how to respond to those, including reporting workplace violence. And so that brings us to the last segment, the reporting and investigating. Once people know how to report, they need to know that the hospital will take action. And they take action in terms of investigating and coming up with strategies to make the workplace safer. And from a morale and an effectiveness standpoint, this particular aspect is most important. You must create those feedback loops um, that your team, if they entrust you to report, and we know that workplace violence is extremely underreported, they want to know that the hospital is going to do something and that the efforts are going to be designed to make the workplace safer. So how do you, how do you approach that? That is a huge issue uh, with many hospitals. We all have competition for resources, and we work on some of these extremely complex issues. We have to provide care even to some of the most problematic segments of our society and some of our patients. So let's, let's talk a little bit about workplace violence and how it can impact. Uh, and I'm just going to give you a couple of quick examples. We worked this case with a 24-year-old first-generation Middle Eastern female researcher. And uh, her parents were very traditional and did not approve of her adopting a more Western, non-traditional lifestyle. Uh, they had very specific curfews for her, didn't want her unaccompanied in, in the presence of, of men who were not family members. And when she began to date someone, uh, her father and her brother said that they would rather have, see her killed than suffer the dishonor of her uh, engaging in what is socially acceptable within the Western culture. So our team developed, developed, worked with her, developed a mitigation and safety plan for her, as well as her boyfriend and close associates. Honor killings do not simply hit the target. Sometimes they will hit those who they believe are negatively influencing um, the loved one to stray from what is believed to be their, their pathway to eternity. Um, the family is battling for her soul. And so there are cultural implications of this issue, but also emancipation issues for um, the 24-year-old female who wants to go on and live her life. So we worked with um, some of our cultural experts to help us in developing a strategy that could reach the family and um, speak to the honor, and, as well as complying with the laws of the United States. Um, we were able to have a, a mediation between the family members, the student, and some of our um, cultural representatives within the community. And from that aspect, we were able to um, reach an accord. Um, this accord um, 
you know, it, it may become strained again in the future, so it's constant monitoring. But what it did was stabilize some of the high emotions that were running rampant. It gave us an opportunity to level set and to, to respect the religious beliefs of the father and brother, but to also bring them into um, our laws and expectations for um, residents of the United States. It was an extremely complicated case. Uh, I'd love to go into it some more at a future date. But suffice to say that sometimes just reaching out and having uh, an opportunity to communicate, uh, respectful communication that doesn't judge um, the, the family's beliefs or the 21-year-old's desire to uh, go on with her life in a different aspect. Uh, those are some things that don't cost a lot of money. There's something that you can do within your community. Uh, and it is that multidisciplinary approach to address a problem, but to also bring about a positive um, and right now sustainable um, safety plan. So sometimes, um, Within the workplace, um, flirtatious uh, conduct, inappropriate sexual advances, uh, if they are ignored, we see that there's a tendency for the bad behavior to escalate in both severity and frequency. So we encourage early reporting. In a particular case that we worked with, a female nurse um, Felt like she was handling unwelcome advances by a coworker. Uh, unfortunately, when someone doesn't understand no, um, those bad behaviors have a tendency to continue and to grow. And that's what happened here. Uh, uh, it, it grew into an assaultive behavior with the man grabbing the nurse's breast. Um, she immediately reported the, the physical assault and um, action was taken to terminate uh, the aggressor after the, the situation was investigated and found to be sustained. He received criminal charges, but more importantly than just the, the law enforcement aspect are the safety planning for the nurse and the unit and the witnesses who came forward in that case. Those are essential components of which the um, comprehensive approach to workplace violence prevention occurs. What you don't want to see is because someone takes criminal action that we think everything's okay, or someone is terminated, so they're no longer on our campus, so everything's okay. Um, we want to make sure that there are mitigation plans in place uh, to protect the workforce in the wake of these events. And, and they go from um, the emotional distress and you can have your um, EAP, your, uh, uh, or you can have counselors who can come in, critical incident debriefings are another opportunity. Um, but the important thing is that the workforce knows that you've um, given criminal trespass warnings, protective orders, uh, that you have security at the entrances, know who this person is and alerted should they come. There's some monitoring of the person outside who is terminated, uh, escorts for the nurses and the units to and from their vehicles. 
and, and monitoring a social media aspects that may indicate that there is a desire for retribution by the person who was terminated. Those are all aspects that need to be managed in the wake of these kinds of events. And then um, we know that uh, uh, patients and their family members um, have stressors outside of the healthcare environment that they bring with them into our setting as part of um, their life. And in this particular case, we had uh, a 52-year-old mother who was approaching end of life. Her adult son was at her bedside. Her primary caregiver throughout the mother's disease progression had been the mother's sister. And she had medical power of attorney and was making the decisions for mom um, as she neared end of life. Uh, the mother's adult son uh, came in at the end of life, uh, expressed um, discontent with the aunt's decisions and some of the care team uh, approaches to his mother's deteriorating health. He became enraged. He was speaking to his aunt over the phone because she wouldn't be in the room with him and made the, um, and shouted over the phone that he was going to for her to bring her gun so that they could settle this matter. Naturally, the care team was very concerned that there could be an escalation, that there could be a physical confrontation or a violent confrontation within uh, the healthcare setting. And so many hospitals moved to a zero tolerance for workplace violence. And zero tolerance for workplace violence is a good thing. But that does not mean that you automatically um, respond with the exact same response. So let's talk about zero tolerance for just a second. We don't tolerate that type of behavior within our healthcare setting. This young man was removed from uh, his mother's bedside by officers who came and they talked to him about the hospital stance that we don't tolerate that type of behavior. But here we have a woman who is nearing end of life. And some of the things that we become concerned with is this adult son who has poor impulse control, a violent criminal history, and is in a feud with his aunt, that that grievance could be transferred to the hospital, that he holds the hospital responsible not just for the treatment of his mother, but the denial of end-of-life visitation with his mom. That denial of end-of-life time has frequently will become enduring. It will become uh, a center point for that person and justification for future acts of retribution. And what we wanted to do is to make sure that that aspect of the grievance did not take root. So we began to work with the son and talk to him about the behavior, his, how his behavior frightened the staff, created a um, um, disruption to the care of not just his mother, but other patients in the area, and reasoned with him and worked with him to have supervised visits with his mother as she neared end of life. And I will tell you 
that that was the single most important thing to dispelling his grievance against the hospital, being able to work with him, being able to give him time to arrange for a final goodbye and have him um, share that experience with his mom for a few hours. I will tell you that our hospital staff was concerned. And so the importance of having a uniform presence as well as police clothes officers who interacted uh, during that window when the son said his goodbyes was essential to maintaining and letting the staff know that their safety was paramount, but also explaining to them the importance of keeping the son from becoming angry with them uh, and taking and potentially uh, retaliating once his mother had um, had passed on. So. Um, communication with the staff, letting the staff control when the visitation occurred, having the staff control the duration of the visitation, and having staff uh, know that they were protected by the institution with a safety plan both pre, during, and after the event helped bring this situation to a successful conclusion. So when we talk about threat intervention, it's truly a multidisciplinary approach. Um, the cases come in at the top of the funnel. Uh, we identify a behavior of concern or an issue. We begin our inquiry and investigation. We drill down, find out as much about the, the person of concern and their grievance and what the issues are and the safety concerns and the staff and those around. We assess. Uh, the level of risk and the potential for workplace violence, and then we manage to that risk. As the situation changes, we again go back and, and um, identify the new concerns, conduct our investigation, and continue this loop until the behavior is either mitigated, resolved, or neutralized. And so the, when you talk about the roles of a threat assessment team, we have people from throughout um, our healthcare community who sit on this team. We have ad hoc, um, we have a permanent core, but we also have uh, subject matter experts, such as psychiatry or palliative care or um, uh, community members, if there's a cultural aspect to it, who come in and share with us and help us gather all information to understand the situation as best we can, determine the level of potential threat, uh, whether or not the person of concern poses a safety threat, and then to offer reasonable and thoughtful management recommendations. How do we approach this unique situation with a unique, not cookie cutter, but a unique approach that is designed to limp, to, to mitigate, reduce, or neutralize that threat. And this is what our um, intervention model looks like. Uh, on the left, you see the reported incident, and it can come from any facet. We receive them from multiple sources. Uh, as a team, we work together to gather information. As a team, we come together to assess that information uh, for potential future violence. We, as a team, develop a mitigation and intervention strategy and then once that intervention strategy is applied, we evaluate it 
we see if it's successful, we, we tweak and retool if necessary, and then we continually monitor until that um, risk has, has returned to baseline or been neutralized. So together, what does a good best-in-class uh, workplace violence prevention program uh, imply? Uh, it uses high reliability principles. Centralized reporting and data collection are essential. You use data-driven decisions to improve your outcomes. It is a prevention-focused goal, uh, goals with training that supports your goals, and you use your and it becomes the model for accreditation standards. And the outcomes are amazing: a positive impact on patient experience and care. You approach that. Uh, zero harm, you enhance your zero harm impact, you enhance organizational resilience, and of course, brand protection. There's this collective mindfulness for safety because we're all coming together as a team to do what's right and to do what's safe. And then as an institution, you become an employer of choice. It, it enhances your recruiting and your retention capabilities. I know it's a lot, uh, and I know it seems daunting, but Steve Jobs said the ones who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who actually do. And we as a team coming together, we can work collectively to make our healthcare settings uh, and our healthcare teams safer, more productive, and more importantly, they can give back their unique tools and their unique uh, abilities to protect our community and to make us all healthier and safer. I know there's been a lot. Um, I hope I didn't go too quickly for the team and uh, I invite any questions. Thank you so very much, Vicki. What a terrific uh, level set and uh, really helping us get started in this area. I know a number of our audience uh, are representing uh, smaller hospitals or groups of small hospitals. Your MD Anderson, I had the honor of training, taking part of my training there and working with you and Texas Medical Center. And the first thing people always say is, the Mayo Clinic or MD Anderson have all the resources. How can I do what they can do? Can you give us some tips as to how one might get started at a typical 300-bed hospital that is in a community doing their best? Yeah, absolutely. All you have to do is take, get some training, uh, and there's free training available through the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals. There's also great training that are available through these types of webinars and from collaborating with colleagues such as myself and uh, uh, we're glad to help where we can, but then form your own team. It's an hour a week, set aside one hour a week to have those more problematic cases bubble up to your unit and to sit together as a team and work through the problem. When you need uh, some additional assistance, say from law enforcement, have those relationships established. Go to your chief of police in your small community. You are a critical infrastructure. Let them know that you need their help on these events so that you can keep the entire community safe. Most police chiefs would welcome a partnership 
Maybe they would even have one of their investigators sit on your behavioral health team one day, one hour a week and look at some of these more problematic cases. That level of engagement, that level of uh, multidisciplinary approach will help you work through some of these more problematic issues. You can always have consultants or have practitioners uh, in the field come in and say, hey, look, we've had a similar situation. This is how we approached it. This was either our positive impact. This is how we were able to mitigate the issue. Or this is a lesson learned. We did this, and, and wow, that didn't go as expected. So learn from us. So those are some things. Collaborate. Form your multidisciplinary team. Establish relationships with colleagues who may have some information or some expertise in the area and leverage that information to make your workplace safer. I'm going to tell you, just by the simple fact that your team knows that you formed a multidisciplinary team dedicated to workplace violence prevention and that you circle back to them, that feedback loop to let them know they've been heard and you're working on it, that will do so much to advance it. Fantastic. So uh, that what a great answer. Uh, next question is, typically, you don't have a budget for new things. And we're all all of our facilities are constrained, especially our smaller or mid mid-sized hospital systems and, and individual hospitals. How do you make the case? Or what would your three big points be to tell the bosses, I need resources to get going here? Well, uh, first and foremost, workplace violence is a resource um, drain. Whether you recognize it or not, you're going to lose time from uh, people who decide that this is not a safe workplace and they go somewhere else. So retention, recruiting, uh, we're all short staff. So you're going to get the reputational harm. Um, but more importantly, it is the... Um, and certainly workers' comp cases um, with a physical injury. But more importantly, it is going to be a drain on the ability to provide service. For you to carry out your core values, your core mission to the community, workplace violence undermines everything you do, including your financial stability. So not investing in it is going to be more costly then addressing it, at least with some fundamental first steps, where you take staff who are already on the payroll and carve out that hour or so a week and provide them with some training so that they know how to recognize the behavior of concern, what's the pathway to violence, what's the difference between effective violence and targeted violence, and how do you approach those? So many times we invest money in target hardening. So we have more security guards, we have um, metal detectors, we have all those things. Those don't address the human factor of how you stop some of these workplace violence incidents through identification, communication, and mitigation of it. And then of course, always those feedback loops so you know if your mitigation strategy was effective and that your staff are being heard. Those don't cost a lot. 
Fantastic. Now, with the changes that have occurred over the last, say, four or five years, this has required some policy changes in the organization. Any tips there? Many of our organizations have been through COVID. They've been stretched. They've had to kind of bend or even break policies just to get through it. And um, any tips on getting those policies changed rapidly? Yes, the most important features of any policy is to define workplace violence. And I encourage you to use OSHA's definition or, uh, or uh, the Joint Commission's definition. Uh, Homeland Security uh, even has a definition. Put those definitions in, educate your community what they are, know what the reporting mechanisms are. If you don't have a strong unified reporting mechanism, you're going to miss those, those events that need mitigation or need action. Encourage that reporting by your staff and they will report more if they know that you're doing something about it. And so um, put in your processes, the definition, the reporting structure, how you're going to approach it and the feedback loops and to identify through the data where your points of vulnerability are and put your resources there to keep those places as safe as possible. Those are some of the things that the policy needs to address um, at the outset that, that in piece with the data that you collect, you have to do an annual site assessment for the Joint Commission if you're one of those hospitals that are Joint Commission accredited. So look at the data and find out where your vulnerabilities are and then have a strong action plan for addressing it. So last question, uh, I think uh, you, you are so talented and so impressive as a communicator. Uh, I will never forget first meeting you and helping you and having you describe this process of de-escalation. Can you tell us how valuable it is for all of us to learn de-escalation? De-escalation is the primary uh, tool in your tool belt to help prevent violence from, even if a violent event has occurred, to, to slow it down and de-escalate. Um, sometimes if you can just calm the person down, remember they're, they're functioning at an emotional level. So their senses don't work the same way. You're not going to appeal to someone who's in an emotional state with logic and reasoning. What you have to do is appeal to them at an emotional level and say, it's okay. It's going to be okay. I'm going. To, I'm here to help. I'm here to help. Let's let's work through the problem. Let's just slow it down. And to start training your staff on that communication and what. Don't argue with someone. You can't. Even if you're right, it doesn't help. In fact, when you're right, it sometimes makes things go the opposite direction. So what you do is teach your staff how to connect with that person and tell them you're going to take them to a place of safety. You're here to help. I'm hearing you. I hear you. Doesn't mean you agree with them. I hear you. And we're going to, we're going to work the problem. We're going to work it out. I'm here to help. I'm here for you. And when you start connecting with the person on that emotional level and bringing them down, that's how you then began, began to work on the logical aspect of the argument. But training your staff how to take a critical incident and know how to respond. If it's an active shooter, you're not gonna, 
you're not going to de-escalate that particular situation. So your staff needs to know where are their safe zones? What are your expectations? How do they keep themselves and the patient safe? How do they deny access? How do they fight? And what tools do they fight back with if that becomes necessary? We are doing unit level where we take our team into the work unit and we spend 15 minutes with the staff. And we walk the unit with them and we say, okay, if an active shooter occurred right now, what would you do? And we talk through where would they go? How would they deny access to that particular unit? How, where would they hide? How could they lock uh, secure patient rooms that don't have locks on them? What are some of the things that they can do to help protect themselves and others while help is on the way? Just acknowledging that that is a sad but true aspect of what we have to prepare for in today's environment is so meaningful to the staff because they know that you are taking their safety seriously and you are coming to them to talk about it. You may not have all the answers, but letting them know that you care can, can yield so many positive res, um, results. And it also engages the staff because now they're going to be an active partner in their own safety. And that is huge. Well, listen, Vicki, thank you so much. And we want to have you back to tell some of those de-escalation stories that are so powerful and memory etched into my memory. We're also going to be building the business case so that we can really help communicate to boards and the C-suite and CFOs why it's important to put good, solid resources, dark green dollars and light green dollars there. And we'll be doing that in the future. And I know we can count on you to help. Have a wonderful vacation. And thank you so much for your help. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Dr. Boats, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts today. So from a clinical perspective, is workplace violence uh, as big a problem as we think it is? No, it absolutely is. I think we've been focusing on that part of the iceberg that we can see above the waterline, but there's much more below the waterline that's affecting our clinical activities. It's affecting our patients directly because with workplace violence, our team uh, performance suffers. And we know that if we have caregivers that are distracted or affected by uh, the emotional or physical effects of workplace violence, their ability to take safe care of patients is degraded. And so absolutely it's a problem and it's a growing problem. Dr. Boats, you and I have had conversations about this expanded definition now uh, that has been put forth by the Joint Commission that goes far beyond physical violence. Your thoughts? Well, I think the definition that the Joint Commission is using is fantastic because it expands the boundaries around workplace violence to include those non-physical or non-direct threatening aspects in the workplace that can affect the performance of our caregivers. And that includes things like harassment or things that might impair someone's ability to either promote or get expanded work responsibilities. And that is a detriment to our workforce. Final question, do you think our leaders really need to uh, dig a little bit deeper than just a definition like this and understand how these typical scenarios might develop in their hospitals and in their healthcare systems? Well, I think so. Um, 
if your organization strives to be a high reliability organization like mine, then you need to look at all of the dimensions of the team members in order to optimize performance, to reduce waste, increase efficiency, and to improve patient safety, which is our ultimate goal. Well, thank you for your comments. We're going to have uh, a second and a third uh, program uh, addressing this, uh, this problem, and today is a level set, so many thanks. Thank you. What we'll do now is uh, actually go to um, a uh, terrific contributor to uh, our program over the last uh, 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 few years. D uh, David Morris is not only a an attorney, uh, but he's also a forensic psychologist, has a PhD in forensic psychology. He's a leader who helps many, many organizations in workplace violence. He has worked at The Hague. And interestingly, uh, he, uh, in his 70s, is, uh, is uh, uh, reportedly the oldest MBA student. He's in his, the MBA program at, uh, at Yale while he continues to do a tremendous amount of work uh, in this area of workplace violence and has been an advisor regarding a number of the uh, events that have occurred the last month that you've seen on the national press. However, we won't be covering those. And so we've asked David Morris to make a few comments uh, regarding this issue. Yeah, so Yale is uh, an exciting opportunity to learn. I'm actually, and I, I say that sincerely, uh, every day I go to class, I feel like I'm 18 years old again, and I'm learning so much that I didn't even know that I didn't know. You know, it's that element of knowledge where I didn't even know it existed, and I'm so fortunate to be there. I, it's an incredible institution, and I am and I say that sincerely. I'm not, it is really uh Special. It's a special place. And you know, the it's it's like gestalt. It's uh the hold is greater than the sum of its parts, no question about it. But the magical part uh are the people. The pe the students you meet and the faculty, they are the pure magic of uh of Yale, really. It's 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 truly an amazing place, Chuck. I'm glad to be there. David, we're so grateful to have you comment on workplace violence. From your perspective, is it as big a problem as we think it is? Yes, it is. It's as big and it is truly a crisis that we're in. And what's really uh, disappointing and, and, and shocking is that what we're seeing is only the reporting. There's a lot that's not being reported. So it's really the tip of the iceberg. The, the problem is much bigger than the data actually even reflects. David, you're a forensic psychologist, you're getting your MBA and you have a JD, so you have a rare perspective uh, here uh, on this. Uh, are there opportunities to use psychology and practical psychology to tackle this problem? Yes, there is. And we're learning more and more about it. Uh, all of my disciplines that I've been fortunate enough to study tell us that in fact, it's not just physical violence, it's assault under definition, if your person feels threatened or uneasy, and then I love the, the definition that has expanded it so that bullying is included. I mean, it's really, those are all the elements that should be included in the definition of violence at workplace. David, today we're just re really establishing a foundation of knowledge. Do you believe that there will be practical tools of screening and psychological assessment and things that we could actually put in place in our frontline hospitals? Do you think that there's a future there? 
Look, there's absolutely no doubt. Once we identify the problem, that's the first step. You've got to identify and recognize and acknowledge we have a problem here and it's really a real crisis. Then the science will begin its challenge. And it is, we need to be a little patient with it, but I know that uh, that it, it can't wait too long. The research is coming out. We are seeing that in fact, assessments of people ahead of time can predict, a, a, a quick assessment of people can predict their propensity for violence under the new definition. And David, is it is it not true that there's a great overlap between workplace violence and insider threats that, that, that we do have a house to clean up on the inside in many of our uh, industries? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I was recently talking with someone that was working in uh, hospitals in, in Mexico. And they, after talking with him a while, he said, I believe there's an overlap between uh, insider threat and workplace violence, is there? And I was really surprised at his insight. And I said, absolutely. The metrics that we're using to actually assess a particular insider threat can be broadened to where you're just getting a person that is low impulse control and actually has suppressed hostility. And that is the person who will act out in, in psychological terms, sorry, that will actually uh, express that, uh, that violence in the workplace. Most of us uh, realize that in the workplace, there are new rules and that we have to be a little more uh, constrained in just letting our thoughts go wild. You have to be more disciplined in a workplace. So the, the people that can't do that, there's a psychological makeup and we are studying it, but it has a lot to do with low impulse control and suppressed hostility. Those are two constructs that are gonna play a key role in our evaluation of this. But our research on using certain kinds of assessments where you they're behaviorally based, what have you done in the past that would not uh, reflect and resonate with this work environment? And really you just wanna fine tune that. But that's for the employees, the guests, and the uh, the patients. That's a whole new challenge, and we're trying to tie work that we're doing with facial recognition, so we can quickly uh, get a handle on who's who's coming into our safe zone. Well, thank you, David, and we look forward to future time with you as we dig into the solutions. We really appreciate it. Yeah. So it's always an honor to speak with you, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you about this very important problem that's emerging and we're becoming better at defining it. And once we've got it defined, we will be able to address it much, much more effectively. But thank you again. Look forward to working with you in the future. So we are very, uh, very pleased to have David uh, helping us uh, uh, with this area. And uh, those of you that are on the podcast, you can actually follow the slides uh, along with the, the video. It's now a great pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Uh, Casey Clemens. He has been uh, with us uh, with uh, our uh, uh, our program over a number of years, and he's re really was our go-to uh, uh, leader in sepsis. However, he has great passion, has really expanded his expertise in a number of areas. Uh, he is a consulting uh, physician and assistant professor of emergency medicine at Mayo and Rochester, Mayo Clinic in Rochester. He's currently the clinical practice chair 
and he focuses on a large-scale interdepartmental and interdisciplinary practice improvement uh, program. He also serves as the, as the staff safety officer for the Mayo Clinic, leading occupational safety with a team that's responsible for integrated safety management and many programs that address staff safety uh, in terms of uh, injury prevention, mitigation, and response. Um, and he has a great passion for healthcare-based violence mitigation uh, and has been uh, uh, leading work in that area since 2014. He now chairs a complex behavior committee for Rochester and the Mayo Enterprise and his spearheads efforts of violence prevention, mitigation, and response. And so we've asked uh, Casey, uh, now Casey, if you would please uh, go ahead and uh, share uh, or I can advance your slides, whichever you wish. I'll go ahead and do it. I like I, I put lots of little clicks in there and I'll drive you nuts asking to advance if that's all right. Uh, and I've got it all ready here for you. So uh, it's kind of a strange title. I had the luxury of being able to, to hear what Vicki had said and what Greg had said um, and, and, and before I put this together. And so it's nice to be able to show up in person because you can highlight the things that you think maybe deserve a little extra attention. And as a recovering researcher, I'm also very data-driven. And so I, uh, I, pr I put some data around some of these things that we've been covering at a high level uh, because we're quality people on this webinar and we like to act on metrics and measurement. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that because workplace violence is a hard thing to grasp. Um, so really what I'm going to talk about is not just what we do know, but a whole lot of things that we don't know, but we need to find out if we're going to make some headway in this space. So first of all, I want to highlight one of the things that our speaker said um, that, that I think is the most important thing. And I don't have a tattoo. My wife would kill me if I got a tattoo. But if I were to get a tattoo, this is what it would say. It's not the part of anyone's job, especially a healthcare worker who's, who's chosen to be there to help people, to be assaulted, abused, harassed, or threatened. Right? This is that expanded definition of the Joint Commission that we were talking about. And it is not part of the job. And, and the second thing I want to highlight was what we just heard um, uh, from our colleague that we reporting is an issue with violence, and it's more than just a little issue. Um, I'll show some primary data in a little while, but I will tell you that your healthcare institution is in the same realm. There's not people who are doing really well at this in this space. So when you hear some of the staggering numbers of violence events that are happening in hospitals and clinics across the country, I think it's fairly safe to say that you can multiply that by four for physical acts of violence, and you can probably multiply it by a much larger number for these abuse, harassment, and threats that people are dealing with on a frequent basis. Um, there are pockets of our practice that we have no idea what's going on because it's never been part of the culture to report these things. When you think about places like appointment lines, this is how people are getting access to medical care. And when they don't get an appointment in the time frame that they want or with the person that they want or in the way that they think that it should be arranged, it is extremely common for those people to be horrifically abused on a daily basis. And I only know that because we reach out and ask them at different organizations. Because if you look at your reporting that's happening, none of that is often ending up, ending up at all in our workplace violence reports. 
The other thing that I want to point out is, is that nursing has done a really good job at getting out ahead of this. A lot of the best evidence that we have around workplace violence is from groups like the Emergency Nursing Association, who have studied this longitudinally for some time. And indeed, nurses are generally the most affected by workplace violence in healthcare, and you can imagine why. They're the ones who spend the most time with the patient. They're at the bedside. They're the ones who are having to adjust people's bodies when they maybe don't want to be adjusted. Um, but nursing has gotten out in front of this and has been, thankfully, uh, a canary in the coal mine to tell us that we have a problem. But we've started to look at other places within our practice to see who else is affected by violence. And once we started turning over some of these rocks, it was pretty impressive um, to find where we didn't know what we didn't know before this. Now, certainly survey-based data is prone to some error, like um, bias recall and selection bias for who's going to participate in these studies. But it really is the best that we have for a lot of things in workplace violence because it is an experience that's not always objectively measurable. And so this is from one of our publications at Mayo that looked at different disciplines working in the emergency department where we really reached out to all of them holistically and said, what have you experienced? Not just have you experienced violence, but trying to define that a little bit. And on the left, you can see that we're talking about verbal threats, verbal abuse, harassment, um, and whether or not people reported that among different disciplines. And on the right, you can see the acts of physical violence and assault. And so, and one of the things that you'll immediately see is that there is no group, none whatsoever, that has not experienced a significant amount of verbal abuse, harassment, or threats. And when you look at that, did they report it or not, it's relatively atrocious. Now, um, the security personnel are the most reliable reporters. Um, and that's been true, I think, in, in a lot of different studies that have been published. It's a part of their culture and it's a part of their job expectation that they're going to be reporting these things. The bedside clinicians and care teams are not as good at this, particularly related to verbal problems. We're talking um, less than 15% for almost every, almost every group. When we get to physical violence, that reporting gets a little bit better, but not much. Um, and some of the folks that really don't report this, you'd be surprised. They're physicians, they're clinicians, and there's some, there's some other groups. There are groups that are at risk for workplace violence in our healthcare uh, settings based on their job. And I would point out radiology technicians, they're doing often painful things, having to get uh, x-rays. They're locked alone in a room with the patient um, and patients will hit and kick them. Um, and so I, as we consider who's at risk for violence, I think it's important to point this out. Um, I will also point out that where this violence happens, similar to the fact that nurses have done a great job at, at sort of ringing out the, the, the warning bell, is this does not just happen in emergency departments. Um, it, here at Mayo in Rochester, 89% of our assaults in the last calendar year took place not in the emergency department. And those were the ones that were reported. When we talk about what's actually a contributing factor to causing people to be violent in healthcare, I really think this is the next wave of what we need to figure out. We don't know why people do what they do, but we have some biases that we need to be extremely careful of. And there's some that I've heard up even brought up on this webinar. And I'm gonna say this in no uncertain terms that outside of chemical substance abuse, 
Mental illness as a treatable access one disorder is not associated with violence. And I think that we need to be very careful. You know, when big, bad, ugly things happen, when sh mass shootings happen, when we have things like we heard about, you know, last week, um, our immediate response a lot of the time is, well, that person must be mentally ill. And that is a disservice both to people who live with mental illness, which is over 10% of us all the time. And it's also a disservice to understanding where we can intervene. When we talk about things like access to mental health care, that doesn't really get to the root of violence. That said, chemical health does, and drugs, drug abuse and alcohol abuse definitely contribute. Um, I like to tell the story, you know, schizophrenia is 1% of the world's population everywhere. It doesn't differ based on society, country, or the other, uh, or the like. And outside of drug abuse uh, is not really associated with violence, but we can see a clear association of violence when um, folks with schizophrenia self-medicate with some drugs of abuse. So I want to point out here, this is an emergency nursing association article from many years ago that mental health issues only contributed about 5% of the time to violence in the emergency department and in, outside of the emergency department was less than 3% of the time. I will actually give our data here as well. So at Mayo in the last calendar year, only 3% of our physical assaults actually happened on the mental health unit. It's far more dangerous from a violence perspective to be on a med surge floor in our hospitals in the United States than it is to be in a mental health treatment unit. I would also point out the things at the top of the list that are contributing. And as I said, drug-seeking drug behavior, patients under the influence or in withdrawal from substances uh, are really up there. Dementia absolutely plays into this, um, and more so on the inpatient side than on the emergency department side, but it is, it is also a key contributing factor. And the, the second thing I wanna point out, and this is more to highlight the, the, what other folks have said, is that we talk about workplace violence prevention, and that is the pipe dream. That's where we want to all get. Um, but how to prevent things is really, really difficult when we don't understand why there's something different fundamentally about how people in the public, patients and visitors, interact with healthcare providers as compared to everybody else in their lives and other aspects of the economy, that they're more likely to hit, kick, and threaten us than they are other folks. And so um, while we are working to prevent that, part of that is prediction, part of that is setting up systems that make it more difficult to harm. Also, however, we have to be able to mitigate the things that are happening. Um, and Vicki talked about that some. And respond when bad things do happen. And that's actually harder than it sounds like. You might think, oh, well, we need to go and support them, provide them care that they need. Um, and, and, you know, pat them on the back. It's far more complex than that, particularly when crimes are involved. And as an institution, we need to make sure that we're supporting people at every level um, in the ways that they need to do, not just internal to our healthcare organizations, but external as well. Um, you know, Vicki talked a little bit about how to build a workplace violence team. I can tell you that I've done this a couple of times and I've done it well, I think, and I've done it not so well, I think. Um, one of the things that you can't really do is you can't really give an all call and say, everybody who's interested in helping with workplace violence, please come to this meeting room on the third floor at, at two o'clock on Thursday. I've done that. And who showed up was every single nurse manager from every single unit in the hospital. 
because people are very, very passionate about this. So there's not a lack of willingness to help that you're going to find as you build your teams. What we really need to do is we need to target expertise based on both role and in the knowledge and skills that they bring. Um, at Mayo Clinic, we're firm believers in a triad model of leadership where there is a physician, a nurse, and an administrative partner. Um, I will advocate and say I think that works pretty well. The other thing is, is that there really does need to be leadership from the bedside. Um, you know, uh, Chief Adcox and Vicki, they do a fantastic job. So does Matt Horace here and our security team at Mayo Clinic. Um, and they, they can help with responding when things happen, with posting personnel, with um, taking all the information that we can, with alarms, with cameras, with a lot of different tools. But one of the things that they, they may not understand in the same way is that a nurse or a colleague of a nurse who just got hit by a patient needs to walk back into that room in a few hours and take that same patient's vital signs again. And so when, there really needs to be leadership from the bedside and there needs to be, the clinical practice needs to be involved in mitigation efforts for them to be truly successful in my mind. And I'm sure we can talk about that after I'm done with these slides, but I, I think this is actually key to moving things forward. And thirdly, we can't really shove workplace violence within an organizational structure where it's separated several steps from the bedside to leadership, and then several steps when something needs to be done as far as an actionable item back up to the group that is empowered to make a change. And I call that, you know, one step from the bedside to the boardroom. So you have bedside representation on leadership groups, and that leadership group is both uh, empowered, has designated authority, or is very close to a group that has designated authority to make changes for policy, procedure, and guidelines, um, or, or to um, really move the needle on this. I do want to talk a little bit about the outcomes of workplace violence. I hope that we've convinced you over the course of the last hour that this is a huge deal. Everybody said that. Chuck asked everybody the question, is workplace violence a big deal? Yes. Um, but it has some extremely significant outcomes, which I think are guiding the future of healthcare in our country. And I would, this, this is really hot off the presses. This is my colleague, Dr. Serena McGuire, um, and myself and colleagues um, studying in a, a Midwest-wide health system um, for uh, a number of different hospitals, services that touch the emergency department and how they may have been affected by violence. And, and I want to point out that in general, people still feel that they stay safe, that they feel safe when they're at work. Not everybody, but it, it, the feeling of safety is not the biggest deal, I think, when it comes to violence. And, and if you're just measuring how people feel at work, I think you'll miss the boat a little bit of the time. But I will point you to the second half of this um, down here, that about half of our people in every discipline in healthcare have fundamentally changed the way that they interact with or perceive patients based on their experiences with violence. That is, a, that is a, an astronomical change in healthcare. And, and they go on to say that actually about one in five healthcare workers have had symptoms that we would contribute to post-traumatic stress um, after their violent events. And a full 18.5% of people have considered leaving either their position or the profession of healthcare because of the violence that they've been experiencing. 
And with the staffing crisis that we have around nursing and other roles in our healthcare systems, we cannot afford to have almost a fifth of our workforce considering leaving because of workplace violence. Um, I do want to just point out one additional thing uh, before wrapping up here, which is we need to keep people out of hospitals who don't have a medical or psychiatric reason to be in hospitals. Um, and I know that around the country, there is a lack of resources for people to have safe places to go. Um, we don't want to criminalize people unless they've committed crimes. We don't want to take people out of their homes um, or, or the like, but sometimes there's not another safe place to go. And as community policing models shift towards, um, towards mental health intervention, as um, some of the legal system shifts towards uh, stays of commitment or re revocations thereof, and where do we house committed patients not wanting to have done that in jail. There's not really a designated place or an output disposition from these questions. And they end up sitting in emergency, de emergency departments, hospital wards, for sometimes up to a year before they are, there's other places that can be found to house these folks with difficult to control behaviors. So while you know we talk about violence in healthcare, it's compounded when it's violence because of behaviors for people that don't even have medical or psychiatric reasons to be in the hospital. And that is not an insignificant number of people in our country. And I, I just wanna bring that up as a, as a confounding factor. Um, as I said, we don't look just inward to our hospitals for how to do this. Um, Vicki mentioned this a little bit about the chief of police and, and potentially the county attorney or the city attorney there in Houston. Um, we actually identified a number of years ago that we tend to be pretty insular in healthcare. What can we change in the hospital? What do we have power over is one thing. But we exist as part of a public safety net and in the public sector that we interact with a lot of different organizations who both bring people to us for help whom we support in their work, and also whom we, uh, you know, uh, disposition to or we um, get people out to. Um, we don't exist in a vacuum, and we really need to work closely together. So here we built a community collaborative. This is about six or seven years old now, where I sit down quarterly with a number of different leaders from the hospital and healthcare organization you can see here, and, in, and a ton of people from around the community um, who we interact with and need to coordinate with really very well. And that is the police uh, chief and the, and the sheriff. It's also the adult and uh, previously the juvenile detention centers. It's the community response case, uh, um, social workers. It's um, community behavioral health hospitals or uh, community psychiatric hospitals, detox, um, our EMS services. And, and I, would, I would encourage this as a best practice that if your hospital, if your community doesn't have something like this, it will make it better for your community for, for this to exist and to, and to work together in a productive way. And with that, I can stop sharing. Uh, Chuck can pass it back over to you. Um, like I said, I, had, I like the opportunity to go at the end and I can kind of highlight uh, the things that I wanted to do. I hope I didn't throw any wrenches in what you wanted to do. You're on mute. 
Thank you so much, uh, Casey. This was uh, just a terrific, uh, terrific uh, uh, job. Thank you for building on what Vicky said. And boy, the new information is really, really interesting. I'd, I'd like to open it up now for the rest of the session. I just have a couple minutes I'll show at the end regarding misinformation, malinformation, and disinformation, because I think a lot of the, there's a lot of muddy water uh, that, that we always have to kind of sort our way through. But uh, Chief uh, Bill Adcox is Vice President at uh, the um, uh, University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. He's the Chief of Police. Uh, most importantly, I think he has just been our partner since 2015 on our MedTech program when we got started. And Casey, you've been such a, a great supporter as well as Randy Steiner, who I'll introduce in a moment. Chief uh, Adcox really is kind of a pathfinder in threat safety science, and we'll have an upcoming uh, book that a number of us are contributing to in that area. Uh, Chief, you were uh, a terrific mentor to Vicki and, and uh, terrific, did a terrific job of really helping us keep focused on these 30 uh, emerging threats. And I'll also introduce uh, uh, Randy Steiner and have both of you uh, first chief and then Randy. Randy is the director of emergency response at the University of California, Irvine. And Casey, uh, we're so delighted to have uh, UCI now adopting our MedTech program. And he's also a, a local expert helping us with one of our uh, entire school districts to help uh, reduce uh, preventable harm prior to uh, EMS arriving and you as professionals in emergency medicine. So it's a delight to have both of you gentlemen, Chief, uh, lead off and then Randy, and then we'll have a roundtable discussion until we wrap up. Well, thank you very much, and, and what a wonderful presentation. And, uh, you know, as always, Dr. Clements, uh, thank you so much for leading in this area. Um, it's interesting because there are many things in which you talk about, and it has to be multidisciplinary, it has to be cross-functional, it has to be very close to the executive leadership in order to have success. And, you know, although Vicki points out that by, by the new standards that there has to be a person appointed, uh, I, I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not the face of the workplace violence program. Our, our program is absolutely clinician faced. Uh, we actually have a, a director for workplace violence who is a clinician, uh, uh, many years as a clinician in this area. So uh, we, we work with everybody across the board to do everything we can. But I will tell you that you, one of the big points that, that, that really resonates, and I think, I hope everybody takes this to, to heart is, if you have less than less, well, let's say less than uh, eighty percent of, of reporting right now, I think the stats were like nineteen and a half or twenty percent of the people are actually reporting workplace violence. That's 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 under the the old rules. If you take a look at the new new definition, I would suspect that that reporting is far worse. So if we really don't even know what's going on, we don't know the scope, we don't know the depth, we don't have a clear understanding. It's really hard to deal with it. So the first and foremost, we've got to good, get a good handle on what is really going on so that we can come together as a collaborative, just like Dr. Clements mentions, and come together as a collaborative and come up with solutions. And at the very far end of that solution is, is, is anything that has to do with uh, law enforcement, policing, and all that. I got to tell you that we cannot arrest our way out of anything, and we should never even think of that. That is absolutely the worst case scenario. And we should stay away from it. And we actually have a preventative model even in our, our work. But we've got to figure out what's really going on. Now, I will say this, and I, I will caution is, is that one of the pieces that will come out is that when we start to see some better reporting, when we get a better definition articulated, educated, trained into our staff and our faculty, and when people start to report, we have a better mechanism picking up, we have a better mechanism for, for doing really quality analysis so that we can come up with 
with uh, with viable uh, approaches to it, we're also going to start seeing some retaliation come around. So we're going to have to be really cognizant of having a, a process and procedures in place to take care of that. So uh, I, I can't say enough that we really got to get a handle on, on the problem at its, at its core. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Casey, for pointing out that, that mental illness does not a contributing factor to these issues. We see that all the time in our line of work, even outside the hospital. Uh, mental illness is, 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 a, is a tragedy. The, the county jails have become de facto uh, hospitals. What we're seeing in our profession is people are just, you know, they pick up people, they drop them off at emergency rooms, and they're not even, emergency rooms are not even set up to be caring for these people. It may take three or four days or longer to get them to, to a bona fide psych hospital or somewhere that can treat them. It's a horrible thing that's going on. We do not have enough long-term or mid-term beds. So again, if we're going to correct this whole problem, we've got to look at it holistically. So uh, again, I, I've probably gone a little too far in speaking, but again, we've got to get a handle on what's going on. It's got to be multidisciplinary, and we've, we've got to just, just consider everybody's views and everybody's ideas on this. So I'll turn it back over to you, uh, uh, Dr. Denham. Can I, so, can I make one comment on that, Chuck? Just, yeah, go just ahead. to point out what, what Chief Hancox and I are saying, the outcome of that is that for your healthcare organizations, success does not look like a decrease in violent events. For the near term, success looks like a significant increase in violence events because it means that you're actually hearing about them. And so the things that we have to rely on as metrics, they're lagging metrics. They're things like lost time at work due to assault by person, which is an OSHA recordable event. That's going to be a relatively reliable success metric um, for at least the physical violence and the, and the, and the very bad physical violence. But, but the, the leading indicators for things like reported events is not a good metric for success. Great. And Thanks. so I want to go to Randy. And, and, and Randy, I just want to thank you and Chief Adcox and uh, Dr. Clements for your great support since March of 2020, when we started to do two webinars a month, and we were focused on uh, kind of being uh, a, a, an educational source for many of our medical centers. But that led us to expand our community of practice from just medical centers to higher education. And you're responsible not only for your medical center, but your entire university of the University of California, Irvine. And we're so blessed to have experts like you that allowed us to expand from medical centers and academic medical centers to, um, to higher ed in our universities and colleges. And love to get your perspective on what you heard today. Well, first of all, um, thanks for having me here, Chuck. Um, and Dr. Casey, or Dr. Clements, and, uh, and Chief Adcox, you, you're, you're hitting it right on the head. I kind of like to kind of need to shift a, a little bit because of, you know, obviously being in a higher ed environment and, you know, waking up to the horrible news of, of Michigan State and just the continued um, epidemic of, of gun violence. I, I got to say right up front, I'm a former Marine. I am an absolute champion of the Second Amendment and believe in, in the right to, to for, for responsible citizens to be able to, to have weapons. But we are 47 days into 2023 and we've had 71, as of before this call, that number may have gone up, 71 mass shootings resulting in over 200 people being injured and you know about 122 people being killed in the first 47 days of the year. You know, the, 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 the 
workplace violence as a whole, you know, it isn't necessarily a gun issue, but having, you know, free and unfettered access to weapons that can easily kill other people for people who, who wish to commit these acts or who, who are compelled for whatever reason to commit these acts is part of the problem. And the fact that our politicians in Washington are completely not having any kind of construction conversation on this is just it's 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 a criminal act right there. It's just crazy that we can't find some common ground to start with. I understand the the political divide in this country right now, and it's pathetic when it comes to to gun issues. There has to be an answer when when Chief Adcock says we have to work on this, you know, from from all angles. That's we have to look at the, that issue. We have to go to our politicians and say we demand that you address this issue and that you you come up with some kind of a solution or at least start talking about at least acknowledge that there's an issue you can't sit there on one hand and say oh we've got this fentanyl epidemic stuff coming over the border it's killing all kinds of people but then not taking action on gun issues when guns are responsible for all the deaths that we're having in this country right now so yes it's a workplace violence is a, is a, a very complex issue and finding the roots or finding ways to prevent it is a very complex problem. But we have to start with, you know, can somebody get a weapon that you can just simply point at somebody and pull a trigger and kill them? You know, that's that's something we have to we have to deal with. Chuck. So Randy, I'm gonna okay. go to I'm gonna go to the the uh, the three slots, the three or four slides at the end to open this up for Casey and and really ask Casey to kind of respond to a couple of things and just congratulate him uh, as well. And so the slides that I'm sharing with you, um, and we have a video that you can go back and watch, and we'll post it on this website for those that are in the podcast and those that are watching online later. But misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation. And I just want to compliment Casey for really clarifying this issue regarding mental health, because um, really a go-to comment is so frequently uh, that it is mental health. And uh, we've addressed in a short video how we're in a public safety crisis, which, Bill, I'd like to have you kind of just frame for us as well, and a public health crisis with the education and the distress that we have. And much of it has come through the Internet. The internet is instant, searchable, and permanent. And this, uh, a, 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 the paper written, and then the, the group that have been really helping us understand this information disorder, um, the misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation. The, the uh, misinformation is, is false, but not intended to harm, where people are just sending false information and just replicating it there and amplifying it in the internet. Um, the the malinformation is the intent to harm, but it might be accurate information leaking, doxing people, you know, uh, leading to harm of individuals. And then the really powerful one is the disinformation, false context, false information that is really intended for some kind of an agenda, whatever that agenda might be. It might be to get reelected as a as a, as a politician, it might be any of these issues, but um, we're addressing this head on, and I'll tell you why. We, we put together a team of students to focus on vaccination, to help drive vaccine, to, to address vaccination hesitancy, those that were in the middle. And we had to pull the plug on it because we have a lot of pre-med students and students in college, and when almost 30 public health individuals who were the really the best people in public health left the profession because of the attacks that were that were made on them we had to pull the plug on it because we didn't want pre-med students who were donating their time then 
be barred from medical school because someone trolled them and put their name out, uh, you know, out on the internet. So I just want to thank you, Casey, who are really addressing head on this mental health issue, which is an easy throwdown. The moment that we talk about active shooter events or we talk about workplace violence. And so I just want to commend you, Casey, and then really open the door on if you want to comment on some of the leading edge innovation you all are doing in, wep in identifying weapons and, 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 and that kind of thing, if you'd like to do that, and then go back to Chief and then back to Randy. Sure. So there's a couple of things there. One is to follow up on your mental illness. There's a couple of questions in the Q&A as well about that that I think we should address. Um, treatable access one psychiatric disorders are not the same thing as behavioral health. And I see that question there. Behavioral health is when someone is brought in because of their behaviors and people can have behaviors for a number of different reasons, including personality disorders which are an access to diagnosis that are not easily treatable in the same way. Um, and then chemical health issues as well, which are access one disorders that are treated separately than that. But when we talk about things like mood disorder, psychosis, um, uh, or mania, some of those things are associated with difficult to control behaviors, but they're not associated with violence in the same way. Um, the follow-up question on that, I did see someone had also written there, um, is the mental health number skewed because they're trained at de-escalation? Maybe. Um, I think that our training is woefully lacking in this area in all disciplines in healthcare and is, a, is, is hopefully going to be getting a lot better based on the new Joint Commission standards. Um, but I, I do think that we should acknowledge that that is a possibility. Um, but even in the public, I will say that the, 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 the mental illness is not really the cause of the violence in the same way. Um, the second question was about weapons detection. Randy, I agree with you 100%. We have been a weapons-free campus here forever, but we started enforcing that in 2022 with passive weapons technology because we know that simple magnetometers and, 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 and metal detectors don't really work in healthcare. Um, they're not as good, um, but passive weapons detection technology is relatively new and around 2020, it started to really take off. Um, and it has been very effective. It looks for the shapes of things, not just the metal of things. And so it's relatively low touch and pretty reliable to find weapons. And we find a lot more weapons on people than, we, than you might expect. Um, to talk about healthcare-based shootings and what causes those and, and how they happen is probably could be an entire other webinar um, and what to do about them. But there's really two main categories. There's targeted um, shootings. This is for um, when they're after a specific person um, and those generally are not coming in through your front entrance. They're looking for propped doors there or they're able to get in your entrance because there's no screening technology. Um, but they're not coming in guns blazing from the front door. The second kind are folks who have um, a, a very distressful situation and they're going to yell at you, they might swing at you, they might hit at you. And if they have a gun at hand, that turns it a whole different realm of deadly. Um, and that's really where a lot of healthcare-based shootings happen as well. And I can point back to the last five months um, and so weapons screening at the entrance to a hospital actually is very good at preventing that. And people in our experience actually understand and they're not upset about uh, not bringing a weapon into a hospital. They're not intending to cause harm with it when they bring it in. That intent comes later when they become distressed and have that weapon at hand. 
Um, and so for that reason, I actually think that weapons detection technology on the entrance to, to hospitals or to healthcare institutions is very effective at preventing both kinds of healthcare-based shootings. And Casey, you did share that you were really surprised at how many, even though you were weapons-free. You want to comment on that, and then we'll go to Bill and then to Randy. Yeah, I don't want to share specific numbers because I, I I don't know that that's necessary. But it is, it is more. There is more weapons on people in the public in our country, regardless of where you are, because we 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 have data from rural practices, we have data from suburban practices, we have data from small urban cities. Um, and there is just a lot more weapons on people in our country walking around today than I think most people know. Um, and, and so uh, trying to keep those out of our clinical and healing spaces is a challenge, but it is possible. Chief, last well, yeah. and then to our patient advocate, and we'll wrap up. Thank you very much. I think you make some very good points. I, I want to go back to, you know, we're, we're talking here about dispelling this, the myth about mental illness is this, this great contributor to violence, which it's not. We also need to talk about, you know, why we look at this disinformation, different disinformation stuff about this, how we macro this this knowledge. For example, we we compare ourselves to other free countries and say, well, you know, our our rates are this or that. Well, quite frankly, uh, we have far more weapons in our country than most any other country, any free country. Period. Uh, we have we have far more crimes being committed than other countries because we define it differently. And so we're not comparing apples to apples or oranges to oranges. And that is the problem. We don't know what's really going on in the hospitals until we can get to the bottom of workplace violence and what is contributing to it and what are the real numbers. We can we come up with viable solutions and not every area is the same. Uh, quite frankly, most murders in the United States are being committed in small geographical areas. You, you can go most anywhere in the United States and it'd be, a, you know, you would not have to deal with an area that's having a large number of murders, but that's not the that's not the narrative, and we need to be honest and we need to get the right data. And so each hospital is going to be a little bit different, and we're very thankful that that, that Mayo, for example, is leading the way in a lot of this area. And your research, Dr. Clement, and we need to we need to drill down and find out what is the real scope, what's the real uh, what are the real issues, and what are real causations, so that we can come up with viable alternatives, viable interventions. And, and do it and everything from where we're trying to get to prevention all the way through what do we do to mitigate and 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 unfortunately we have to a very quick response to take care of secondary damage and that is the response and I think we can do that but we have to be open and honest and bring our right people together and it is not a one type of profession's responsibility it is each and every one of us from the from from each type of employee again multidisciplinary cross-functional and again, I thank you very much, Dr. Clements and, and, and uh, uh, Randy for bringing up some good points. But we, we just got to keep stop. We got to stop talking in cliches and stop talking about macro data and all this stuff. Let's, let's zero down and find out what the real problem is. It's like, it's like surgery. I would assume that you're just not just cutting anywhere in the body. You've kind of zeroed down where you got to go. So again, we've got to do that. So I'll, I'm, I'm sorry to ramble, but. Thank you, Bill. No, that really great comments. Uh, we'll go to Randy, and we know, and I just want to tell the audience we're coming back to workplace violence and covering this broader definition in the months to come, and we welcome you to uh, to join us. Randy, uh, would you like to make uh, uh, your final comments, and then we'll go to um, uh, our uh, patient advocate, voice of the patient, and we'll close. 
Yes, sir. What a great discussion. Thank you, Dr. Clements and, and Chief Badcox for, for those comments. And uh, Chief, you are you are so right. The data is really what we have to look at and we have to drill down and we have to figure out, you know, what the root causes are. But, you know, on the on the, the, the bigger level, you know, the data that is out there, it has to be presented factually. And it just every time I hear you know, in the political divide of one set of politicians using data to, to make one point and the others using it to make another point and using data for political points versus data to solve a problem is just something that we as Americans, we have to demand better from our politicians. We just have to, you know, however you can get in touch with them and say, you know, I don't really care how you do it, come together on something, find the common ground and start there. As a country, we we have to start there. Otherwise, this epidemic is just going to continue. People have to have the factual information in order to get the resources, like the detection devices Dr. Clements was talking about. You know, like, that should be something that you can get through a grant through the federal government. You know, the, the hospitals shouldn't be having to find funding for those sort of things. We see this as a problem. It's an epidemic. The government has to give us those. The, that acknowledgement and also those resources. And that's why I just appeal to everybody to reach out to your representatives in Congress and, and tell them to, to pull it out and start working together so we can start fixing this. So and I just want to acknowledge you, Randy, for your championship in the last uh, 90 days or so to get Stop the Bleed kits across the entire UCI campus because you know, there's going to be prevention, but there's also the mitigation piece. And, and so we just want to acknowledge you for, um, uh, you know, for doing that. Um, so uh, we will now ask uh, Jenny, uh, Jenny Dingman to close us. We uh, always close and uh, with uh, a voice of the patient and family and keep our uh, compass heading uh, straight. Uh, Jenny is a national uh, leader in patient safety and quality. She was on uh, one of my committees with the National Quality Forum on Safe Practices. She's a published author and she's uh, a, a steadfast supporter of families across the country. It was really a great program today. I greatly appreciate all of our speakers, and I am thanking all of the participants in this webinar. Again, I urge you to please share the program recording with all of your friends, colleagues, family members, and anyone else that it might help. This is a very, very important subject, and being able to protect yourself from workplace violence is very important. Thank you all for being here. God bless you, and we'll see you next month. So we'll close uh, with uh, uh, the, the comments that we generally close with in our MedTech programs. Uh, we need to fight the good fight. We need to finish the race and we need to keep the faith. And we're just so thankful from these for these terrific speakers today. And we're going to tackle this uh, this uh, a broadened uh, uh, definition in the months to come uh, so that we can really have some practical discussions regarding solutions, prevention, preparedness, uh, protection, and performance improvement. Thank you all for uh, being with us today. And that will end our webinar, our 200th webinar, 200 monthly webinar uh, today. Thank you. Thanks, Jack.